having finished the work, it feels incredible. The visual pieces that I was able to put together speak volumes, and I'm so happy and ever so grateful to see ideas flourish into real-life products. It's such a blessing to be an artist and to be a creator. It's such a blessing to be in amazing community. I have so many people to thank who have really helped me along the way as I've processed this journey. Not every character in the cast was uh, benevolent. <laughs> we can say it that way. There had to be some villains in the story in order for there to be adversity, in order for there to be conflict to process and to journey through. And I give thanks even for the people who seemed as though they were an antagonist and or the villain, the enemy. I give thanks for all the characters in the story and for the process and for the lessons that I've learned along the way. Again, now having my art pieces complete, the thing that I contemplate is their worth. The three pieces each have their own worth assigned to them, just as they each have their own expression of being. The foundational piece is one that I like to call treaties, and it came from me reading through the Nez Perce Treaty of 1855. I found the Word document online and I sent it to my mom and I asked her if she could print it out for me because I didn't have a printer. And she did. And I stapled it up and I brought it to my desk along with the printed out version of the Treaty of 1863. And I was looking forward to finally, after 33 years of life, sitting down and reading through the treaties that have dictated so much of Nesper's existence and as far as I've known it always in my lifespan you know and it was hard <laughs> it was difficult to read not only because the language was so thick there were so many words and there was an old time flavor to the words that led to some confusion It was also hard to read because it was breaking my heart. Seeing the lies built in to the entire structure, to the entire foundation. By which we exist in this country and in relation to the government uh, and by which we're allowed morsels 
of our original freedom to express ourselves and our cultural ways. And the major thing that this taught me is that it's not about... the transaction. (laughs) It's not about give us our land back. It's not about you took our land from us. It's greater because Nimipu Witki, Nesper's way of being, Nesper's existence is connection to land. This research really helped me to understand that our Nimipu way of being and in working and learning from the earth and from the animals, that was our religion. That was our way of being. We do have outside forces view our way of existing in the world and with the world as something that they wanted to rid themselves of, that they wanted to remove from their physical space as a way to use the land for its resources. And in the meantime, expand upon systems of using those around, those that they deem subservient in manners, as free labor or as forced labor. You can't reverse out of that information. It makes it hard to think of just everything that has happened (laughs) and everything that we're still living today. Getting back to my art pieces, as I mentioned, it's not a simple transaction, and that is what this project has shown me for my peace treaties again starting with that highlighter it really showed me one the way that the language was broken up and so how you had to track even visually to different parts of a paragraph to put together a full statement everything was chopped and spliced and arranged in different ways where loopholes and caveats and workarounds were built into declarative statements. And seeing all that color reminded me of my beads. And so I cut up the treaty, and I pasted it on a canvas with all of the colors, all the highlighting. And it really just shows the extent to which the government... And the formulators of these treaties went to 
really, really, really dig their their roots in deep with these harmful, greedy, and destructive structures. And yet it looked pretty <laughs> because there was a lot of color on it. And so I added beadwork around the pasted pieces of cut up treaty that I put on a black canvas. And I added different types of beadwork. I added fillers and incomplete designs and filling methods. Uh, it wasn't all about designs. It was about different ways that I understood and have witnessed my ancestors and my people adapting to situations. And here it was, a canvas full of language that depicts death and cultural genocide. It depicts the extraction of natural resources in and the roots of capitalism. <laughs> and yet it looks so pretty. And it just reminded me of how much we can make look so pretty with our beadwork, with our hides and tanning and sewing and weaving, dancing and singing. We can make such beautiful things uh, even out of some of the saddest circumstances or the most destructive ones. And so that interplay of these very harmful words mixed with bright colors and vibrant patterns and beadwork, it just looks so pretty. Uh, and it reminded me of of that sunshine that peers through dark clouds, of that bit of hope and spirit that you feel inside of you even in the darkest and gloomiest of times. And I've priced that piece at a number that came from the treaties themselves working through the Treaty of 1855, where in Article 4, the U.S. government agreed to pay the Numipu $20,000. In the Treaty of 1863, in Article 4, that number increased to $262,500. And then the lesser-known 1893 agreement with the Nez Perce Indians, the total that was discussed in Article 3 of that document was a payment sum of $1,626,222. And so when I thought of pricing out this work treaties, that's exactly where I went. I went to the treaties and to where they talk about money. These aren't the only places where they discuss money and different contributions and payments to the Nimipu, to the Nez Perce people. 
However, these are the large and major sums that were assigned to, to the value of our people and to our way of life. So those three numbers I brought to officialdata.org, uh, which is basically a, an inflation calculator. And I was able to put in the years and amounts of money. So for 1855, the $200,000 uh, came out to about $6,188,400. And that's leading into the Treaty of 1863, where the $262,500 promised uh with inflation today would be $5,608,233.75. And again, the agreement in 1893, where the U.S. government promised the Nez Perce people $1,626,222, that would come out to $48,641,275.80. And so putting those three numbers together, that's where I got the number $60,437,909.60. And this is really just the price of the main sums offered to the Nez Perce people. These are sums of money that were never paid. They were documented and acknowledged to have not been paid. <laughs> and it only seemed appropriate to allow the treaties themselves to dictate the value, if any value can be assigned in a monetary way, to the artwork. And that's where the number $60,437,909.60 comes from. From the Article 4 of 1855, Article 4 of 1863, and Article 3 of 1893. The three areas that I talk about in my notes. When I look at my second piece of artwork... pay us and I have to thank two people for the revelations in both of these pieces when it comes to figuring out the number that I just discussed A discussion with a very <laughs> amazing and brilliant Angelo Masters Jr. brought that number and that perspective into into my brain and into my world, and it really allowed me to sit and think about that and to pay attention to the way that 
money and payment was discussed within the treaties. And so I want to thank my dearest, dearest friend, Angelo, for introducing that to me. And on the other side of the coin, coin, I want to thank uh, Beth Piatote, who is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant beyond compare, and someone that I have the great honor of spending time with, um, even virtually. It's truly an honor. And she brought to my attention the thought of things that can't be paid. Uh, again, looking at these treaties, that's one thing that stands out right away is that there are strict numbers. They're finite. They help you to understand exactly where to go from there. You know, we, we know how to process a number. We know how to process payment. Yet how do we calculate and process life, culture, language, existence, and so with pay us, that's the main point. <laughs> is how can you pay us? How can you pay us for all of the things that we have endured? How can you repay the severance that we've suffered from land and from space and from our very own autonomy? to exist in the way that we choose. And I couldn't think of the words exactly how to express that. However, I'd like to share this poem that Beth shared with me. And if you do a Google search, you can find it. I simply Googled Wendy Rose $3,000 death song. The first hit off of Google brought me to a Word document that has a poem that I would like to read here because it really does speak to this portion of my journey and of the series as a whole. When I say pay us, again, how can you pay us? <laughs> and so this document says, Wendy Rose, a Hopi activist and poet, prefaced this poem with a quote from a 1975 invoice billing a museum for the delivery of, quote, artifacts, 19 American Indian skeletons valued at $3,000. Please pay from the invoice, end quote. Being brutally honest, the first time that I read through this poem, 
I read that sentence three times. Artifacts, 19 American Indian skeletons valued at $3,000. Please pay from this invoice. And so it goes on. $3,000 death song. Is it in cold, hard cash? The kind that dusts the insides of men's pockets, laying silver-polished surface along the cloth, or in bills, papering wallets of they who go about threading the night with dark words, or checks, paper promises that weigh the same as words spoken once between the grown grass of our history and the hidden water in the clouds. However it goes, it goes. Through my body it goes. Assessing each nerve, running its edges along my arteries, planning ahead for whose hands will rip me into pieces of, red, of dusty red paper, whose hands will smooth and smatter me into traces of rubble. It's invoiced now. How our bones are valued. Our bones that stretch out pointing to sunrise or are flexed into one last fortal bend. Our bones, removed piece by piece and knocked about, cataloged, numbered with black ink on their newly white foreheads. We come apart. We are formed. Excuse me. We come apart as we were formed, having gone together to laughter of white soldiers, white students, all the same in our fleshless prison. From this distant point, we watch our bones auctioned with our careful beadwork, our quilled medicine bundles, even the bridles of our shot-down horses. Have you priced us? At what cost removed us? What price the pits where our bones share a single word? Remembering, still we don't see how one century has turned our dead into something else, what you call, quote-unquote, specimens. Our blindness might be catching, you know. Picture the mortars, the arrowheads, the labyrinths standing up and shaking off their labels like animals, suddenly awake to find the world went on while they slept. Watch them touch each other, become as one, march together out the door, walk into the wind searching for us. Watch our bones rise to meet them. At what cost then? Our sweet grass smelling having been? Is it to be paid in clamshell beads? Or steatite, dentelia shells, or turquoise? Or blood? That is the poem by Wendy Rose, $3,000 Death Song. And finally, my third piece, I named Nimipu. In this piece, 
I incorporate a large supplice, which is the Nespers word for whirlwind. Uh, there are creation stories behind the supplice and many lessons to be learned that <laughs> I won't dive into here. However, use of the symbol seemed so right for the purpose of this project. And above it, I wrote the word Nimipu. Because this is an opportunity for me to have artwork in the homelands of my forebears. Earlier I mentioned, or at some point I have mentioned, if not here, elsewhere, how I have literal ancestors buried at the head of the lake, at the head of Wallawa Lake there in Joseph, Oregon. Yet that doesn't even begin to account for the many generations of people that were laid to rest throughout that land over centuries. And these are the people that I descend from. And so to have an opportunity to have some of my artwork in a place where my ancestors rest to this day, it seemed only fitting that a portion <laughs> at least of my series be solely dedicated to us as Nimipu. Yes, the task was to interpret the treaties. Yet, just for me alone, I can't center everything around the treaties. For me, the most important thing is being Nimipu, is sharing our Nest Purse knowledge. It's informing other Nimipu. It's making sure truth is told. And more than anything, it's about returning prayer and presence, Nimipu presence, back into our homelands. And so I use the supplice along with a right, or excuse me, uh, a written, written text in beadwork. And I used my 24 karat gold cut beads. And those are valuable beads. And at the exact same time, I grimace. Because it 
is the discovery of gold that really changed the tides for who we are as Nimipu. The discovery of gold led to the Treaty of 1863, where the lands that were promised to us in the Treaty of 1855 were reduced by 90%. It's heartbreaking. And here I am using <laughs> gold in the artwork. And this gold has journeyed so far from its raw form to be shaped into a tiny bead and to be given flat facets that shimmer in the light when hit just right. These are rare finds. It's a competitive market to find your gold-plated 24-karat beads. And as I laid them down, I was overcome by the idea of letting them go, which is what I did. I used gold paint, again, an acrylic gold paint, and I just slapped paint right over the top of some of my most precious beads. And in some eyes, they'd probably say, oh my gosh, you ruined the beadwork. You ruined your beads. And it felt freeing to let them go because it felt symbolic. Our people lived with the land. We lived with the space. We lived with gold. And it was others that saw it as a resource that took to extracting it, that took to displacing others from their home simply to have access to it, that took to forcible removal of families from homelands that they have existed in before the tracking of history itself. And so it felt freeing to let it go. And as a metaphor of it being there, it being a valued part of the artwork, yet it being equal to everything else. And that's the third piece, Nimipu. Really the last thing that <laughs> there is to say is that or I guess, rather, when I was thinking about it, 
And I was like, well, Kellen, what do you want to say? You've done all this research. You've processed this artwork in your own way. What is it that you really want to say? And it brings me back to the thought about how things haven't changed. How the same structures that were put into place nearly 200 years ago. Wait. <laughs> Let me do my math. Well, I guess not that near. 55. Yeah, that's still, we're only 30-something years away from being 200. <sighs> what, 34 years? That's not that long. So yeah, these things nearly 200 years ago show documented proof Of, of the atrocities of the things that we still suffer today. The timeline, it just, it breaks my heart to work from the Treaty of 1855 into the Treaty of 1863, discussion of 1868, and taking away more timber rights from us. And then the 1870s, President Grant's executive petition or order to possibly establish a different reservation for the Wallawa Nez Perce. The Dawes Act, the General Allotment Act, and the way that it really worked to separate Native people from one another within their own communities, as well as Native people as a whole from their connection with land and space. The Nez Perce Agreement of 1893. The Citizenship Act or the Snyder Act of 1924, and even taking into consideration termination, um, where termination itself was a policy in the United States from about the mid-1940s to the mid-1960s, um, which was basically a take back <laughs> from the government. Looking at Wikipedia itself, it says in practical terms, uh, the policy of Indian termination ended the federal government, the federal government's recognition of sovereignty of tribes, trusteeship over Indian reservations, and the, exclusive, and the exclusion of states' laws applicability to Native persons. So basically, it was a way of taking back where they would release themselves of federal funding, of federal protection. Um, and this was 
shaped as a policy intent on assimilating Native Americans to mainstream American society. So this isn't that far away. We're not far removed from this history. We are literally still living all of this. Again, having somebody come in and tell you what to do in your home, forcing you into many situations and many compromises. And over the years, you endure and endure. And then to come to a point where the government says, hey, actually, all of this stuff that we established with you, we're going to take it back. And we're just going to let you be, quote unquote, free in this capitalist market that we've established and we have disenfranchised and excluded you from. Since it's, since its inception. <laughs> and again, that's not even taking into account uh, the desire to be a part of that system. And I don't want to forget that the Nimipu are industrious people. When religion came through through the missionaries, we sought out the information. We wanted to learn. We've been open to learning and to adapting. And throughout Nesper's history, you see so much of that. Even to the example of old Chief Joseph as well as young Joseph. Going and learning English and the teachings of the Bible. It's not fair to neglect to acknowledge that that bit of our ingenuity and our way of, again, adapting and evolving and looking to learn more. This is all in accounted for as well in the documentation from the Lewis and Clark expedition. And events that followed. So I want to honor for sure the way that our people have always adapted and sought to, to learn and stay prepared uh, and equipped and educated 
to function in different ways. So again, this is only the beginning of this journey. I hope to learn more. I hope to open up more conversation with others as well as with my elders. And I'm excited to go from here. And in closing, really, again, just understanding that nothing is new. And so answering the question, what do I want to say? I really don't have to say it. I'm sure that the words have already been said. And they have. Uh, the last little bit of research really led me to uh, speeches from young Chief Joseph, uh, and I want these to be the final words of all of this, because again, I don't need to say anything new. People have been living with everything that we look around and see today. People have been living with everything that is discussed throughout the notes that I share in this series. The same systems, the same corruption, the same hatred, the same greed, the same lack of compassion, the same duplicity. It's all the same. And so this is a speech that came from Chief Joseph when he was invited to Washington, D.C. in the year of 1879. And this is the following report that he made. And this is all there's really left to say <laughs> about this entire series. So with that, thank you so much. And here is Chief Joseph's report to Congress in 1879. I'm glad I came to Washington, D.C. I have shaken hands with a good many friends, but there are some things I want to know which no one seems able to explain. I cannot understand how the government sends a man out to fight us as it did General Miles, and then breaks his word. Such a government has something wrong about it. I cannot understand why so many chiefs are allowed to talk so many different ways and promise so many different things. I have seen the great father chief, President Hayes, the next great chief, Secretary of the Interior, the commissioner chief, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, the Law Chief, General Butler, and many other Law Chiefs and or Congressmen. And they all say they are my friends and that I shall have justice. But while all their mouths talk right, I do not understand why nothing is done for my people. I have heard talk and talk, but nothing is done. Good words do not last long unless they amount to something. Words do not pay for my dead people. 
They do not pay for my country now overrun by white men. They do not protect my father's grave. They do not pay for my horses and cattle. Good words do not give me back my children. Good words will not make good the promise of your war chief, General Miles. Good words will not give my people a home where they can live in peace and take care of themselves. I am tired of talk that comes to nothing. It makes my heart sick when I remember all the good words and all the broken promises. There has been too much talking by men who had no right to talk. Too many, too many misinterpretations have been made. Too many misunderstandings have come up between the white men and the Indians. If the white man wants to live in peace with the Indian, he can live in peace. There need be no trouble. Treat all men alike. Give them the same laws. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. All men were made by the same great spirit chief. They are all brothers. The earth is the mother of all people, and all people should have equal rights upon it. You might as well expect all rivers to run backwards as that any man who was born a free man should be contented, penned up, and denied liberty to go where he pleases. If he tie a horse to a stake, do you expect he will grow fat? If you pen an Indian up on a small spot of earth and compel him to stay there, he will not be contented, nor will he grow and prosper. I have asked some of the great white chiefs where they get their authority to say that, to say the Indian that he shall stay in one place, while he sees white men going where they please. They cannot tell me. When I think of our condition, my heart is heavy. I see men of my own race treated as outlaws and driven from country to country or shot down like animals. I know that my race must change. We cannot hold our own with the white men as we are. We only ask an even chance to live as other men live. We ask, we ask to be recognized as men. We ask that the same law shall work alike on all men. If an Indian breaks the law, punish him by the law. If a white man breaks the law, punish him also. Let me be a free man, free to travel, free to stop, free to work, free to trade where I choose, free to choose my own teachers, free to follow the religion of my fathers, free to talk, think, and act for myself, and I will obey every law or submit to the penalty. Whenever the white man treats the Indian as they treat each other, then we shall have no more wars. We shall all be alike, brothers of one father and mother, with one sky above us and one country around us and one government for all. Then the great spirit chief who rules above will smile upon this land and send rain to wash out the bloody spots made by brother's hands upon the face of the earth. 
For this time, the Indian race is waiting and praying. I hope no more groans of wounded men and women will ever go to the ear of the Great Spirit Chief above, and that all people may be one people. Hinmatoyalakit has spoken for his people.